We are in Mark tonight, almost to the end of the series, Images of Jesus. Aren't you excited? Seriously? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Mark chapter 15, if there's Bibles on either side of me, if you don't have one, feel free to, to grab one and uh, take it home with you as our gift from you. If you have that Bible, uh, it's on page 728. Uh, Mark chapter 15, uh, the, uh, what's happened here is where we left off. Jesus just died, and now we're going to deal with uh, the ramifications of that, the, the outworking of Jesus being dead. We're starting in verse 40 of Mark chapter 15. It says this, <clears throat> there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and the younger of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And they were also, there were there also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. It's that verse that we'll lean on mostly tonight. Uh, Verse 44. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Jesus we're talking about, the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen, bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Let's pray. God, I, I stand before you now and I ask of you to guide us as we look into your word, Father. I pray that you would... Uh, Free us from distraction. Take away things that we might think of instead of you tonight, Father. And allow us to, to focus in on what you have to say to us. God, I, I pray that your spirit would continue to dwell among us, Father, and, and lead us and guide us into truth and knowledge about how you've revealed yourself and your character to us and revealed our own selves and our own character as well. We thank you for Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. You need to have a little bit of background uh, around what's happening here. We're going to spend most of our time tonight talking about Joseph Joseph of Arimathea. We don't know much about this city called Arimathea, uh, but we do know, fire that slide up there, Uh, we do know that it is a city in Judea. Judea is towards the southern region of this map. You see Judea there. Just above Judea is Jerusalem. So the the all caps, bolded things on this map are regions, maybe states or counties uh, in 2010 American terms. Uh, Judea is one of those regions. So somewhere, scholars don't know exactly where Arimathea was. There's not much uh, from, in Scripture, there's not much extra biblical stuff talking about where Arimathea was. But Joseph was from around this area, and you see Jerusalem is in Judea. So it's, it's important to know that for, for this. 
Most of the stuff that Jesus did that Mark records and all the Gospels record are up in the Galilee region, up there by the Sea of Galilee. You see it's about in the middle of this map that we're seeing. Uh, But all the stuff that happened in the Holy Week when Jesus died and the stuff that we're talking about tonight happened in Jerusalem because the Pharisees rule this area religiously. And the, the Pharisees of the Pharisees, the biggest, most important Pharisees, live in Jerusalem. So anything that happens important in the life of a Jew happened in Jerusalem and its surrounding area. So Joseph of Arimathea, we just read in Mark, that he was a member of the Sanhedrin who were the ones that, that killed Jesus ultimately. So Joseph was from around this area, but probably lived most of his life in Jerusalem. That's the, the background that, that you need to know. I, I want to lay some other background. This is something I didn't know before I studied this week. When part of the sentence of a crucified man would be that he was not allowed a burial. What that means is, get a little bit graphic, but I want to get graphic intentionally so we know the heart of what's going on here. A man who was sentenced to crucifixion was not allowed a burial, which meant he stayed on the cross until he was no more physically. Uh, What that means is decomposition would happen, uh, birds would come, and when decomposition would come, birds would begin to eat away at who he was, and maybe a leg would drop off, and then it would be eaten until he was gone. The, the fact of the matter of what was supposed to happen to every crucified man and what was supposed to happen to Jesus. Now, there were rare occasions when a family member would, would petition whoever it was who sentenced the crucified man to death. In this case, it's Pilate. A family member would go to Pilate and say, he really wasn't that bad, he was convicted falsely, please let me take his body down, let me go bury his body. Only family members, close family members. We're talking about a husband or a wife, a son or a daughter, a parent, one of those. Joseph of Arimathea has no blood relation to Jesus of any kind. So for anyone to come to Jesus and get his body down is very rare. For Joseph of Arimathea to be able to do it is unheard of, never happened. That someone that was not a close relative would be allowed to take the body of uh, a condemned, crucified man down. And from that, we can learn this, what William Lane, a commentator that I read, he says this, only if Pilate had no reservations concerning Jesus' innocence of the charge of high treason, but had pronounced a sentence to placate an irate mob, would he have granted the request of Joseph. So what this does for us, among other things, is expose the motivation of Pilate. Pilate sentenced Jesus to death because he was scared of the mob. Remember we've talked in recent weeks that Pilate's main job was to keep the peace in the area. If he didn't keep the peace in the area, then there was going to be uh, an issue with him losing his position. Romans, the Rome rules this area, and they have given Pilate his job, and his job is to keep the peace among the Jews in Jerusalem. And if he doesn't do this job well, he's going to be removed from his position of power. So, when these heavy hitters, the Pharisees, come and want to kill Jesus, he says, yes, I, I will placate you and I will, I will kill Jesus, but I don't believe he's guilty of high treason that you're accusing him of. The only way for Pilate to okay Joseph of Arimathea to take the body down was to think, you know what, this guy truly is innocent, so I'm going to let you take him down. Important for us to see that. Now, who is this guy 
Joseph of Arimathea. It's, it's really important for us to come to grips with who this guy was because it, it begins to help us to understand who he was and then we can begin to relate to him. Luke, in his gospel, chapter 23, verse 15 and 51, says this. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was a member of the council. We understand now that he's a member of the Sanhedrin. We've, that was also in Mark. He was a good and righteous man. Luke calls him a good and righteous man. So we know he's a member of the council, and we know he's good and righteous. Then, verse 51, he had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. Two other things we find out there. Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin that did not consent, did not think that we need to kill Jesus. But looking back at Scripture, looking back at all the stuff we've talked about in Mark and, and in Matthew and Luke and John, there is never a voice that's heard among the Sanhedrin who stands up and makes his voice known that says, no, we're doing the wrong thing by killing Jesus. So Joseph was moved to think that this was wrong. We don't need to kill Jesus, but not moved in such a profound way to actually speak up and say anything about it. What this is doing here in Luke and in Mark is painting the picture that Joseph of Arimathea was a coward. Here, pre-death of Christ, Joseph of Arimathea is a coward. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, a good and righteous man. He didn't agree with the understanding, the decision to kill Jesus, and he's looking for the kingdom of God. Every time we come across that phrase, I want to point it out. The kingdom of God is a, kind of a hard term phrase for us to grasp, for us to lay hold of. But ultimately, it is the intention of God to reestablish his kingdom, to reestablish peace, to reestablish relationship between us and him and between us and each other. When we see the kingdom of God, that's what we're looking for. For these people in this age, they're being oppressed by the Romans. And all throughout the course of the history of the Jews, they're being oppressed by lots of different people, lots of different groups, lots of different nations. Here, in this case, they're being oppressed by Rome. Joseph of Arimathea would have been looking for God to come and change this thing, to, to bring this kingdom of God. So he's looking for it, and Jesus has walked around proclaiming that he is going to reestablish the kingdom of God. But there's more in the Gospels about who Joseph of Arimathea was. John 19.38 says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, so we know more that he connected with Jesus, he wanted to learn from him, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, he's afraid. Afraid of the Jews. He asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, so he took away his body. Two more things we learn that Joseph of Arimathea was afraid of the Jews. And also, we learn from, up in Mark, Joseph of Arimathea, verse 43, a respected member of the council who was also looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So, pre-Christ, pre-death of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea is a coward, afraid of man, afraid of the Jews, afraid to stand up and do something. But after the death of Jesus... Mark says he took courage. What happened? First, what was he afraid of? We, we have to, there's, there's two important things for us to, to come here. Why asking for the body of Jesus is courageous? First is he would have placed himself in opposition to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, just a day before this event happens, sentences Jesus 
to death and takes him before Pilate and asks Pilate to kill him. So the Sanhedrin is the religious ruling body. The most powerful people in Jerusalem in this day that are Jews are the Sanhedrin. And Joseph, by connecting himself with Jesus, by asking for the body to go and bury it, is doing a very courageous thing because he is placing himself in opposition to the Sanhedrin. The second reason why it's important, and and more importantly, is that he's placing himself in opposition to the Romans. Not only is he in opposition to the Sanhedrin, he's also in opposition for the Romans. If the the made-up cause for Jesus to be killed is high treason, the last thing that a religious leader, who being a religious leader, places himself in opposition to the Romans to begin with, because they're worried and not so certain about these, these religious leaders, were, and, and he is one, he would take it even further and place him. Jesus has been convicted and tried and, of, and executed for high treason. And think about, in our context of high treason, you are in direct conflict with the government. And anyone who's in direct conflict with the government we want to distance ourselves from. There, we have no-fly lists in this country, watch lists in this country, people that can't fly on airplanes in this country because they have associations with people that we know to be treasonous or, or wanting to tear down the United States. Do you see the, the, the parallel, the analogy there? To, if you were to go and place yourself among a terrorist, that would draw attention to you in this age. What Joseph of Arimathea is doing is connecting himself legally to a treasonous man, a treasonous person, which brings all kinds of attention to himself and allows him to not move freely about Jerusalem. It's a, it's a major thing that Joseph of Arimathea does. So I want to spend the last bit of our time uh, talking about how we can relate to Joseph of Arimathea. I want to talk about idols. Joseph here, in this context, was controlled by his idols. There were a few that are obvious to us about who he is. What is, first, let's, let's think and talk about what is idolatry. In your bulletin is this quote. It's also on the screen. Tim Keller. He says, idolatry is anything I look at and say, if I have that, my life has value. Anything that is so central to your life, you feel you can't live without it, is an idol. So stuff that we bow down to, stuff that is more valuable to us than to God are idols. So look, let's look at Joseph of Arimathea. What were his idols? First and foremost, and most obvious, is fear was his idol. And not only was fear was his idol, it was also his Lord. And I'll talk a lot tonight about this concept of Lord. What is a Lord? It's what tells you what to do, where you receive your direction. For Joseph of Arimathea, fear is what told him what to do. Fear is his idol. It's his Lord. He bows down to it. It's the thing that shaped his action. Our idols are our lords. We bow down to them and they shape our action. What else? What were his other idols? Uh, He also has an idol of power and acceptance. These things, fear, power, and acceptance are more vital to Joseph than following Jesus. And remember, it's important to note, Mark 
and Luke have both called him a good and righteous man. And this good and righteous man has idols that he bows down to that shape and predict what he's going to do, that shape and predict his behavior. Fear. He's afraid of the Jews, so I'm not going to confront them. Fear. I'm afraid of the Romans, so I'm not going to confront them. But looking into the cross of Jesus, watching him suffer, changes him and allows him to have courage. How do we bring this here to our lives? Idols shaped his behavior. Idols shape our behavior. If we're honest, we see that we have idols everywhere, and our idols shape and predict our behavior. Anything that's so central to your life that you place great value on it, you feel you can't live without it, is an idol. And those things shape and predict our behavior. They become our lords. Forget the, this, that you're in a church and when you hear Lord, you instantly think of Jesus. Think of, of what Lord actually means. It's the thing that tells you what to do. Peasants had lords that told them what they could and they couldn't do. Lord, our idols are our lords. They tell us what we can and can't do. They shape and predict our behavior. But how, do we, how does Joseph overcome these idols? He needed desperately, he abandoned Christ. This good and righteous man who was seeking the kingdom of God, that was of, of no value to him in light of his fear, his need for acceptance, his need for power, because he's this Pharisee, and he has to be in with this crowd. He has to receive his validation from them. And if he places himself in opposition to them, that power, that authority, that strength is all gone. So these things predict for him what he's going to do more than his following, his being a disciple, his being a good and righteous man. All those things predict for him what he's going to do. Because remember, there's nothing in Scripture that said Joseph stood up in any of these trials of Jesus and said, we're wrong, we're doing the wrong thing. But Scripture tells us that Mark thought that we were doing the wrong thing by killing Jesus. So his idols shaped what he did, not his philosophical understanding that Jesus is Lord and is Messiah. So what did he do? What happened to change him from an idol follower to a Jesus follower that would allow him to, to, to risk his wealth, risk his power, risk his acceptance, and, and not give in and bow down to his fear? The thing that, that happened, we see very clearly what happened. Joseph sees a suffering Jesus. He sees an accepting Jesus. He sees the cross. And it changes him. And now he associates himself with a treasonous man. We know him not to be treasonous, but in the minds of the Romans, he is a treasonous man. He associates himself with that. He distances himself with his job. His, his occupation was being a part of the Sanhedrin. He disassociates himself with that willingly because he has seen a suffering Jesus for us. Where do we go? What do we do? We gaze upon the cross. This, here, this isn't a... A lot of this has been a, a philosophical sort of understanding message. Here, very practically speaking, we all have idols that shape and, and predict what we will do. Joseph had fear, acceptance, and power idols. And they were all gone as a single result of 
looking upon Jesus, the only thing that happened in the life of Joseph was watching Jesus die, looking upon his cross. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 3. It's on the screen. Here is direction on how to combat idols. And we'll come back to Joseph's story in a second. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Let me be clear about this. Rubbish isn't close to to what that word means. It is literally excrement. If we were to read the Greek, it would be a word that I can't say in this building. It is excrement. It's a slang term for excrement. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of Christ. Let's go back to Keller's definition of idol. Idolatry is anything I look at and say, if I have that, my life has value. If I have that, my life has value. Anything that's so central to your life that you feel you can't live without it. Think of that definition of what an idol is. Think of Joseph of Arimathea bowing down to his fear, his need for acceptance, and his need for power. And put that understanding up against Philippians 3.8. Indeed, I count everything, my power, my wealth, my fear, all of these things I count as lost. They are worthless in light of, of gaining Christ and knowing Christ. Whatever temporary suffering that we might endure by not giving in to our idols pales in comparison to the cross. And Joseph gives us a beautiful, real-life, real-world example of that. This is a great illustration of how to combat your idols. Joseph now has a big target on the back of, of him from the Romans. This man is potentially treasonous. He is asking for this man who we've convicted of high treason, he's asking to bury him and he's not even related to him. We need to pay very careful attention to him because of this. He has risked everything in his life as he knows it with the Sanhedrin because of this. And it's simply because he has come to grips with the truth of Philippians 3.8. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Paul here in Philippians 3 is combating his potential idols by giving proper respect to the position of Jesus. Let's dig into a little bit more of Philippians 3.8. In the middle of that, he calls Jesus, Christ Jesus, my Lord. So many times when we come upon that, we think of that as just a phrase to tell us as a long name for Jesus. My name is Richard Warren Maxidon. Jesus' name is not Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jesus' name is Jesus of Nazareth. Christ is a term, a phrase, speaking about who He is. It's Messiah, the Chosen One, the One who God sent to us to bring us into the Kingdom, to bring us into relationship with Him. That's what Paul is calling. And in order for us to understand Philippians 3.8 as the avenue to combat our idols, we have to come to grips with this thing. We have to place... Jesus in proper perspective. Placing Jesus in proper perspective is calling him Christ. 
You are the chosen one sent by God to free us from our bondage, from our fear, from our marriage to our idols. We state, when we say Christ Jesus, that is what we state. You are chosen by God to free me from my marriage to my idols. Then, even more, Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is totally misunderstood in religious culture. And we are liars when we confidently say, Jesus, you are my Lord. Lord is the thing that shapes everything that we do. Anytime we sin, we are saying, Jesus, you are not my Lord. I am my Lord. That's what an idol is. It, it shapes and patterns our behavior. It is our Lord. To, to speak, Jesus Christ is my Lord. Especially in this context, when everything is lost in comparison to it, shatters our idols. And I hope you don't see, as, as I'm walking through this, I hope you don't see an idol as a, a physical, tangible, golden thing that the Israelites bowed down to. Uh, a golden calf. An idol is, I, I, have an, I have an idol of validation. I need to be validated by those who I trust and respect pastorally. If, if I don't get validation from, from those guys, my life seems to be less. I hope that when I'm thinking, we're walking through this, thinking about and talking about what an idol is, that you, your mind can go specifically to someplace and understand this is an idol. I hope you can lay a hold of it. And I hope you can lay hold of Philippians 3.8 and the life of Joseph of Arimathea to help us to understand how we combat and shatter and lessen the grip that these idols have on us. There is an understanding of the clarity of Jesus. That's what Philippians 3.8 is, is leading us to. To clearly see who Jesus is as Christ Jesus my Lord allows all of these things, our idols and whatever, to pale in comparison. Continue. How else can we relate to Joseph of Arimathea? He is wrestling here with his spirit and with his flesh. I want to define these terms a little bit. His spirit and his flesh. Scripture talks about, we'll see it in Romans in a second. Scripture talks a lot that, that we have in us, the, the Christian has in us, the spirit of God. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling among us. But we also have a sinful flesh dwelling among us. And they are at war all the time. It's good versus evil. It's right versus wrong. And more, more specific for us here and now, I, I think these two terms, the philosophical versus the practical, help us to understand this war that's happening within us. And Joseph of Arimathea was right in the middle of it. Philosophically, he knew this is wrong to kill Jesus. Practically, he did nothing to change it. Philosophically, we know right from wrong. Practically, we, we, don't, we don't do it. Joseph wrestled with these things. Luke tells us he didn't consent to killing of Jesus, and he was looking for the kingdom, but he did nothing. Can you relate to that? I can, I can relate to that. Knowing what we ought to do, but not having the courage to do it. We're being led by our idols. Joseph wrestled with his flesh and his spirit. I want to do good. I want to please God. But on a practical level, I fail. Romans 7. 
Paul, again, writes this. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Remember, flesh versus spirit. Good versus evil. Philosophical versus practical. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. That verse sums it up perfectly of what's going on inside of Joseph and what's going on inside of Paul and what's going inside of all of us. Look at that. Connect with that. Relate to that. Nothing good dwells in me. Nothing good dwells in you. That is our flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right. Joseph's standing in front of the Sanhedrin and they want to kill Jesus and he knows it's wrong, but he doesn't speak up. But not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Walk slowly through this because the do's and do nots all kind of go crazy. But walk slowly and, and understand what he's saying. Verse 20. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who does it, who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. A law, meaning there is something in me that shapes what I do. It's the spirit versus the flesh, and it's true of all of us. And it is inside of us, and it wars constantly. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that is something that I can't control. It's just a law inside of me. We don't decide to be affected by the law of gravity. We don't decide to be affected by the law of sin and death and life that's within us. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, His Spirit. But I see the members of another law, that is our flesh, waging war against the law. And of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin, dwells in my members. This is a, a deep philosophical guy talking about a deep philosophical thing. But ultimately, it's very simple. We have two powers within us that are fighting for control of ourselves. Do we see that? You have two powers inside of you that are fighting for control of you. They are fighting to be called Lord. They're fighting to be idol versus the truth. The beauty of this is the gospel. We've, we just laid out all this stuff. Paul here, the, he wrote most of the New Testament. The, this great church father, this brilliant man who, who lived a, a beautiful life seeking and suffering and all for the kingdom of God. He is telling, he's saying, these are his words. I have a law in me that I want to do what I want to do, but I don't do it because I'm a sinful, gross man. The next verse, after he lays all that stuff out, is Romans 8.1, and it is the beauty of the gospel. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the guy who doesn't do what he knows he's supposed to do, who knows he's placing himself in opposition to God by his actions. And he's speaking 
the clarity that there is no condemnation. It's gorgeous and it's beautiful and it's the gospel and we see it in Joseph of Arimathea too. He is this guy who's a sissy, afraid to stand before Rome, afraid to stand before the Sanhedrin, and he gazes upon a dead Jesus Christ on the cross, a suffering Jesus Christ on the cross, and courage overwhelms him, and he willingly places himself in opposition to those people who can kill him and can take away his power because he's seen a suffering Jesus. And he doesn't, he's not fearful to approach the throne of Jesus because he knows there is no condemnation in him. Jesus, God has changed that. He's taken it away. And we have to come to grips with that. Romans 8 continues to go into some real deep Pauline theology about the flesh and the spirit. But ultimately, what it is, is we have this war within us, but there is, Jesus has come and there's no, no more condemnation. He goes into some sanctification. And that's the stuff that Dave talked about last week. He explained to us, it basically teaches that God is moving us self-centered to God-centered. That's this process of sanctification that Joseph of Arimathea is experiencing, and we're watching it happen. Joseph of Arimathea becomes sanctified, moving from Joseph-centered to God-centered. Do you see that? He's moving from flesh-centered and flesh-led to spirit-centered and spirit-led. He's moving from death to life. That is what sanctification means and what Dave brought before us last week. Here is being worked out in a real life example of Joseph. It's an illustration of the sanctifying power of the cross and the sanctifying power of the gospel. So what does all that tell us? It tells us the gospel isn't just to bring us to a place where when we die we get to go to heaven. The gospel is about bringing us to a place to live on this planet to change our hearts and change our lives and change how we act and shape who we are and shape what we call the Lord and destroy our idols. That is what what Dave was getting at last week and what we have to come to grips with. The Gospel isn't just for here and no longer. It's for here and forever. And the cross is there and it shapes us and, and guides us and brings us where we can say, This, the truth that we can see here and apply to our lives is that engaging the cross and the gospel or engaging ourselves and our idols informs behavior. I got that on the screen so we can see it and understand it. The truth here that we can walk out of this place with is that engaging the cross and engaging the gospel versus engaging ourselves and engaging our idols shapes our behavior and what we do. That's the truth of the matter. It shaped Joseph before and after the cross. He engaged his idols, he engaged himself, and he did not speak when Jesus died. He engaged the cross and he engaged the gospel and it shaped what he did. He placed himself in opposition to those in authority of his life. But... We do not modify our behavior. The cross and the gospel do. It's a beautiful, beautiful story for us to connect with. And my prayer for us is that we begin to see and and destroy our idols. And the path to do that is found in Philippians 3.8. It's found in a life 
of Joseph of Arimathea is found all throughout Scripture. Instead of engaging ourselves, we engage the cross. Instead of engaging our idols, we engage the gospel. Think deeply about it. Let's pray. God, I, I thank you for the beauty of what we got to see in this man, Joseph. Thank you for the perfect illustration of sanctification. Thank you for the perfect illustration of gospel changing. God, I pray now as we walk into this time of response, Father, that you would engage our hearts with your cross and with your gospel, Father. And we would know the truth that there is nothing in this world that we chase that compares with the surpassing value of your Son, Jesus, Christ Jesus, my Lord. God, sink that deep into our soul, into our being, Father. Christ Jesus, my Lord, and His value. Draw us into Your presence. Allow us to linger here, God. You are beautiful. Your Gospel is beautiful. You are worthy. Thank you for the cross. That we can engage it and shatter our idols. Draw us now to the cross and to your Son. It's in His name. Amen.